everybody, welcome to episode 31 of Literary Disco. Crooked letter, crooked letter. Today's episode in three parts. We'll begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I find a book at random on our bookshelves to discuss. And then we will judge a book by its cover. Julia will read only the first sentence of a book, and Todd and I will speculate on where it goes from there. And finally, we will discuss the crime novel Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello there, Mr. Strong. Bookshelf Roulette, getting some random numbers from the interwebs. Yes, I have done so. I am okay. I'm eager to see. Do we need to remind readers what Bookshelf Roulette is? And by that, I mean yes. remind Ryder and I again how we find books in this game. It's a really complex system in which we take three numbers and then we get a book. Uh, so the way it works is, all right, everybody, look at a bookshelf near you. The top left corner would be corner number one. The top right would be number two. And then clockwise around there, the four corners. So that's our first number. Our second number is how what shelf. So if you're starting on the bottom, you count up. If you start on the top, you count down. And the third number is how many books over from that point. I am ready. From Tyson Meek, our number one fan. Tyson um, is definitely our number Tyson one recently fan. admitted on the internet that he's had dreams about literary disco. So Tyson, if you're listening, it's time to get help. It's Wake time up. to get help. Wake up. <laughs> Spin that top. Okay, so. <laughs> All right. All right, number three. Tyson gives us the number three. So we're going to start at the bottom right corner. And then from Jen Dempsey, we're going to go four shelves up. And then from Catherine Brehan, ooh, her handle is Hawkeye Poet. I like that. Fuck yeah. Uh, we're going to go two books over. So three, four, two. Three, Are you four, guys two. Ready? I'm ready. Yes. Ready. I'll be right back. All right, let's do this shit. I'll go first because mine's going to be quick because once again, I have to acknowledge that I have a book buying problem and I buy a lot of books. I buy more books than I read. So <laughs> mine is a book I have not read yet, um, although I've read pieces of it. It is called The Book of Deadly Animals by Gordon Grice. You guys Whoa. read this? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but I love Deadly Animals and that cover looks awesome. That reminds me of an, an essay by John Jeremiah Sullivan that writer didn't like. Well, this is a complete <laughs> book um, of that ilk. We'll put the cover on the website because this is a great example of a great cover. It is a really angry hyena. It's very enticing and terrifying. And I love animals and I love being scared. So that's why I bought this book. Um, I wanted to know horrible things that animals did to people and other is animals. that all it is it's just a compendium of stories of yep animals eating people oh um, my god uh, i love it, it, it i, I want that. it so bad <laughs> <laughs> why are we all obsessed with that <laughs> it's not it's not necessarily store well i don't know because i haven't read it but it's it's stories but it's more um it's nature writing it's just about right. it's really detailed about how all these different things can kill you Oh, that's you. awesome. And um, so here are the categories. This is why I bought it. <laughs> categories of animals that will eat your face. Okay. I'll take are, Cocker Spaniels for $100. There are five um, sections of the book. They are the carnivorids, aquatic dangers, Ooh. the reptiles and birds. Birds. The anthropods and worms. That's probably oh. the moment that I decided to pay for the book. Fuck that. And other mammals. <laughs> I don't need to think about a worm eating me. That's some fucking Wrath of Khan shit right there. I, I really wish I had read this so I could give you guys some horrifying facts. How have you oh, not read this? How? Pictures I know. In it. I think I would tear through this in like a weekend. Yes. You should read it while you're camping, happened, too. Guys. 
That, yes, that book would live in my bathroom for my entire life. I would read about a different animal that could eat my face every time I had a bowel movement. So I think uh, both of you know that I have an obsession with bears, like an obsessive fear of bears. And uh, uh, have we talked about the movie uh, The Edge? I, I don't think have I'm aware of your Grizzly obsessive Man? fear. <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, Bear. You didn't know about my bear thing? No. Me Is this a sort of Legends of the Fall? <laughs> yes. I know damn well that Julia knows this because I gave Julia, when we first met, I gave Julia an essay that I was writing about oh, yeah. my obsession with bears. Because, yeah, it, yeah, and so Julia definitely knows this. I thought maybe I, totally I had given you that essay that. too, Todd. But it was like, I've just always had a, like a real fear of bears. And I've actually had like, a bunch of bear encounters in my life so you're not talking about like gay dudes right you're talking about <laughs> actual bears in the wilderness bears. i've had i've had encounters with both but <laughs> no the, <laughs> i'm talking about the wild animal gotcha. I, I, but but my brother and i we both grew up just par- with this fear of bears like we, we used to go camping with our parents and we had a couple bear encounters as kids and i don't know why it's just like an obsession but we're both obsessed with the movie the edge which i'm sure todd you must yes love i saw that movie, yes oh it's so bad and yet so good he's a manhunter. <laughs> It's a terrible movie. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so bad. But Mamet wrote it, and uh, it actually is a really great screenplay. Uh, but I had this conversation once with another friend who was obsessed with that movie, and, and he was like, oh, yeah, I love any movie where an animal is eating people. Oh, yeah. And he's like, too. as a rule, that's a good movie. And I kind of think he's right. Have you seen, Ryder, that video that swept through the internet a couple weeks ago of a guy who left a camera out in the wild and it's a bear attacking the camera? So it's it's what it would look like if your face was being eaten by a bear from your oh point God. of view. Googling it now. <laughs> it turns out bears both look adorable and have giant heads that will eat your face. Yeah, it, I feel like Ryder's fear of bears is the fear we should all have. Yeah. That... Oh my god, I just saw crazy lightning in my house. It's a bear <laughs> outside my house. Insane. <laughs> An electric bear. And oh, yeah. readers, um, re- uh, readers, listeners, raise your hand if you somehow started watching Grizzly Man on oh. TV or Netflix and thought it was a cool movie about camping and then you watched it to the end. Because that's Are you what serious? You didn't me. know what it was about when you saw it? Nope. Oh my god. Oh, I did. That movie oh. scared the crap out of me. But the that thing about that so movie good. also is I'm like, you know, bears are not your friends. Bears are wild animals. Bears will eat your face. So, Mr. Chocolate. <laughs> I mean, sometimes... I just love the way he talks to them, and he's, like, tapping them on oh, the nose. Like, that thing is going to eat your hand, dude. Yeah, well, they just they just had a couple... Last year, a couple people got eaten in Yellowstone. There, yeah. there are sometimes like, when I'm in bed, and our dog will be on the bed, one of our dogs will be on the bed, and I'll be like, oh, there's my dog, Scout. And then I'll be looking at her and thinking, if she wanted to, while I slept, she could take my throat out, even though she's just a cocker spaniel. There's a fucking animal on my bed. And that's just a dog. It's not a fucking bear. Jesus. You don't see a lot of Jews out there hunting the bears, by the way. That's all I'm saying. Can I also endorse something I have read? I know Ryder loves this. The Faulkner story, The Bear, is one of the best... Best things ever written, yeah. That's why you gave me the bear essay. Because we bonded over loving the The bear. bear. The story of the bear. Well, I, I have my book that I have discovered... Um, it is a great book that I did read. Unlike Julia, I buy books and then I read them. Oh, um, fuck you. <laughs> pajamas! Uh, but actually, I think on this show, you've presented more books that you haven't read. Yes, that is true. Because you, you tend to present books that you're like asked to review that you're never going to read. That's true. Yeah. That, that is, or that is true. Or things like you wrote your political your thrillers number. that you've talked about. Or greeting cards <laughs> I've received. So the book that I yanked off the shelf is 
a fantastic book called Matterhorn by Carl Marlantes, which is a novel of the Vietnam War. It came out, I want to say, two years ago. It is about 600 pages long, and it is one of the best books I've ever read, and one of the best oh Vietnam books I've ever read by okay, far. It, it, it now. It ranks up there with um, the things they carried, um, in my opinion, and going after Cacciato in terms of uh, Vietnam books. But it's told from an omniscient, multiple point of view, so it's it bumps around about like 30 different heads of, in, of people in this particular battalion that are fighting um, for this mountaintop, which is just an absurd battle they have to wage, that they they take it and they lose it and they take it and they lose it, and it's it's a strategic point of absolutely no need whatsoever. It, it is just a great, fantastic book about what happens when soldiers stop trusting one another and about not trusting leadership, and oh, it's just a brilliant, brilliant novel. Um, it's 600 pages. I think I read it in like three nights, um, I was up till four o'clock in the morning, and after you read it, you're, you're going to find yourself quoting it because it's uh, there, there's something that the the soldiers say over and over again when something is absurd or beyond their comprehension or something becomes totally real. They say, "There it is," hmm. and it, so it's this all-encompassing response to things. Well, there it is. Um, and it's just, uh, I absolutely love this book. And Carl Marlantes was at the uh, LA Times Festival of Books when this book came out. And he was sitting in the green room, and I, I brought this book with me to get it signed by him. L trudged it all the way across Southern California. It weighs like 47 pounds. And I saw him sitting there eating a mini pizza, and I was like, no, I can't go talk to him. I, I think I turned into a blubbering idiot. Uh, I know. I just that's not like it you, is God. not like me. Not with a writer in general. Um, supermodels mostly, but I just I and then part of me was like, you know what? I think if I talk to him and talk to him about the book, it stops. The book stops being the book and starts being something that someone I know wrote. If that makes any sense to you, yeah. um, or someone that I've met wrote. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna let this book be it. I don't need to go meet this guy. Though I keep thinking I might invite him out to my residency so I can spend like five or six days with him asking him everything I want to know. And it, the book took him something like 30 years to write. Um, he went to Yale. He was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. He got the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Purple Hearts, 10 Air Medals, and wrote this book forever, like 30 years. And then he wrote another book called What It's Like to Go to War, which is a book about the philosophy of being a warrior, um, which is also incredible, a uh, nonfiction book. So Carl Marlanti's Matterhorn, I recommend it to all of you, all of your family's perfect holiday novel, if you have a really fucked up family. All right, I landed on a play, actually. Um, I have never seen this play, but I love it. It's really good. It's called Stones in His Pockets by Marie Jones. Have either of you ever heard of this or seen no. it or read it? No. Okay. It's an Irish play. It's really good. Um, but like I said, I haven't actually seen it. It was something I was considering uh, a director friend of mine wanted to do a play. And so I was considering this one to act in a couple years ago. And he... I think he passed it along to me, and so I, I spent a lot of time reading it and thinking about launching it as a, as a production. And uh, it's so cool. So it's the whole, the story of the play is it, a movie is being filmed in a small town in Ireland, like a tiny country town in, in County Kerry. And uh, 
the cool thing about this play is like it's all of you know there's all these the local uh irish people and then i think it's a london production so they're english uh people coming in that are you know kind of taking over this small town but the whole play is performed by two actors so they play all the parts mm. so it's awesome. like yeah so it's one of these real sort of you know you have to create each one of the char- each one of the actors has to create about i don't know 10 to 15 different characters distinct characters wow. with distinct accents and find ways to move in and out of all of those characters because it's a very funny quick-witted play so it's very much about like you know quick conversation and quick transitions but it's a really really funny and then kind of ends up being a little tragic too uh by the end you get um you know the the, the lives of these the locals gets a little sad and there's some death and it's really good, and um, I highly recommend it. If anybody wants a, I mean, I if anybody can find a production that's going on near them, totally check it out. But I don't know if it's being done anywhere um, right now. But uh, certainly, if you are looking for a good play to read, we don't get to talk about plays that often on the show. Uh, but if anyone wants a good contemporary play, uh, "Stones in His Pockets" by Marie Jones. It premiered, I think, in '99, huh. and then in that New sounds York, amazing. It played in 2001, so. Yeah, Julia, you should definitely read it because I think, you know, I, I mean, it might be one of these things that's I mostly see it. interesting for actors, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, I want to see it too. Uh, I guess the guys who, who did it originally were incredible, uh, but as, as an acting challenge, like I was really, you know, thinking about taking it up because it's really um, tough. That would be, yeah. the, I mean, that's like basically your own mini series. <laughs> where, right. where, that, that, that would yeah. be hard. I don't. You know what? Uh, there's an amazing, a hilarious two man play that was workshopped at the Upright Citizens Brigade and then went off Broadway, um, which is unusual for UCB stuff to go that far, um, called Gutenberg the Musical. And it's a two man <laughs> musical about the invention of the printing press. Uh, I was so hoping it was about Steve Gutenberg. I was praying <laughs> to God it was just like a bio piece on Steve Gutenberg. Like it cover the police academy years. The musical is so awesome because they have to do big group numbers. So it's obviously a huge satire and parody, but it's the same thing of they have to create all these characters and then how do you do like a huge Les Mis style group number with two people? It's hilarious. You guys should download the soundtrack. Oh, that sounds cool. It's, it's awesome. All right. Well, that was a good roulette. I think yeah. I think we landed on some books that we should all have read. Great um, numbers, guys. And uh, I think that the big takeaway for me, again, is bears will eat your face. Ow. Don't hug a bear. Don't hug, Bears are not your friends. judging a book by its cover just because i don't want to forget we want to thank someone someone awesome in our literary disco life jesus christ i want to thank jesus christ yes we're very religious that's not Um, true at all her name is jews don't believe in christ (laughs) right okay her name yeah they're called christians Wait, you don't even, you yeah, know, like, that's... he was a historical figure. He was, like, I, I believe he existed. I mean, I just don't believe he's the son of God. Okay. Well, anyway, someone who may or may not believe in God, but is still great, <laughs> either way, is Laura Marshall Van Eyck. Um, she is a great listener who helped us out with something that you guys have been begging us to do, which is she made a list of every book that we 
mentioned in all of our episodes, and we have put them on our Facebook page. Um, she wasn't the only one. A bunch of listeners helped us out and took one or two episodes at a time. But Laura made a list of 15 different episodes. And for that... Oh, that is so <laughs> insane. I'm so glad she did that. And, 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 it's not, and it's not just the major books. It's any book we also happen to mention like in passing. Like, oh, that reminds me of... Dot, dot, dot. She got that, too. And the TV shows, songs, and movies so we mentioned cool. also. That's when it gets really embarrassing. Laura, you're yeah. a hero. You don't have to write down every TV show that Todd mentions. And you definitely don't have to write down sports-related songs. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you to our other listeners, too, because you guys all made my life a lot easier. And we'll thank try you, to take it from here on out. Um, okay, so what we're going to do now Let, is... Let's be honest. We're, we're not going to take it from here on out. We're going to need your help, Laura. <laughs> please, yeah, please. Laura, if, <laughs> if, you give us, if you send us... Actually, here's, here's the deal, Laura. If you email us your address or if you direct message us your address on Twitter, uh, for the hard work you've done, we'll send you a gift. Ooh. A mysterious yeah, I don't know what that gift, gift will be. Typically, when people have received gifts from us, it's um, it's a very high-valued item, like a signed book by Todd Goldberg. <laughs> Your own book or, like, any book? I sign mostly Stephen King novels and send them <laughs> off. <laughs> yes, my own fucking books. How dare you? All right, let's judge a book by its cover. Okay, so judging a book by its cover, that's a game we play. Not related to judgment or covers. Okay, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read the first sentence or two of three different books, and these guys here will have to guess uh, the nature of the book, the genre, maybe some themes, um, and if they're really good, they'll guess the book itself. I think, I'm just going to say ahead of time, the theme is redemption. Okay. The British are frequently criticized by other nations for their dislike of change, and indeed, we love England for those aspects of nature and life which change the least. I'm saying it's about British people. Passage to India by E.M. Forster. Mm. Wow, just going all the way. No. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's going to be something about bad teeth. Ooh, okay. He's just right. naming British stereotypes. And malnutrition. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's... Mm. I will say you're on the right track with malnutrition. Oh. I was going to say it's about uh, the British oh. Empire. I mean, that's why I thought Passage to India, because it seems like it's about the British Empire, which made me think colonial life in, in some way. I think it has something to do with the Mayflower. You guys are close. So we're, so we're on the right. Yeah, so it's about the, the expansion of the British Empire. Or, yes. You're right. I believe it was written. Maybe it's something about Jamestown. Oh, is it the book Jamestown by Michelle Hunovan? No. Um, do okay. you want to hear it again? Because yeah. I feel like you're losing yes. a little bit of the sense of the voice. Okay. <laughs> yes. The British are frequently <laughs> criticized by other nations for their dislike of change. And indeed, we love England for those aspects of nature and life which change the least. Oh, the we are speaking yes. of the Brits, not about right. themselves. I believe this is a book about the people on the Mayflower after they came to America and realized, oh my God, there's no food here. Or Australia. I think it's about, about colonialism, though. Yes, and it's from the perspective of... The colonists, or the you know the, the splinter, and I believe it was actually written in the it was written in the twentieth century though. Really? Yes. Um, and I'm also going to say that it is not a pop up book. Not a pop up book. No. Okay, you guys want to know okay. what it is? Yes. Any final guesses? I'll tell you. It's a book you will know the name of, but probably haven't read. Is it about animals that will eat you? 
In a way, it's also about redemption. <laughs> All right, what is you it? You guys, it's I'm I'm really impressed. You're you're so close that that silence was me looking it up on Wikipedia so I could see exactly how right you are. All right, let's hear it. It is Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh. Uh, it was written in the 20th century in the 1930s, but it's retelling a story from colonial times. Amazing job, guys! Um, wow, well done. And it's about a mutiny, so you know. Animals being on a ship. Yeah, on a ship. What is the story of the bounty? It's a British ship that was sailing in the Dutch East Indies, and there was a mutiny on it. And that's all I know because this is another book I bought and haven't read. (laughs) Um, I believe it has. It goes something like "Mutiny on the Bounty and the Seven Seas." It's a line from a Beastie Boys song. Yeah. That's all I know about it. Okay, well, but that's why when Todd said malnutrition, I was immediately impressed because if you're on a ship, that's part yeah, of your life. Yeah, scurvy, rickets, yeah. So, yeah. wow, good job, guys. That you guys you. as Thank you close much. as you could get without any of us having read the book. Yeah, that's so good. <laughs> okay, are you guys ready for number two? Yes. yes. From the pleasantly situated old town of Mayenfeld, a footpath leads up through shady green meadows to the foot of the mountains, which, as they gaze down on the valley, present a solemn and majestic aspect. Uh, nonfiction, written in the 1800s. Yeah, I was going to say it's definitely earlier. It's 19th century. At yeah, least. male writer. What? Why did you say It's that? a male. I, be- I believe it might be Ralph Waldo Emerson. No. Let's hear it again. Can I hear it again? Um, And I'll even give you the second uh, sentence. That'll help you. Okay. From the pleasantly situated old town of Mayenfeld, a footpath leads up through the shady green meadows to the foot of the mountains, which, as they gaze down on the valley, present a solemn and majestic aspect. Anyone who follows it will soon catch the pungent fragrance of grassy pasture lands, for the footpath goes up straight and steep to the Alps. To the Alps. There we go. Oh, there we go. Well, we're, we know we're in Europe. Yeah, I don't think it's 20th century. No, I, it has to be written in the 1800s. And it's nonfiction. You are correct that it is written in the 1800s. Yeah. And it's nonfiction. Is it nonfiction? I'm correct about that. So it's fiction. So it's fiction. So it's fiction. <laughs> I'll give you another hint. Pretty much everything okay. Todd has already said is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> From the first episode until now. <laughs> it gives me so much pleasure to say that. Uh, so it's the 1800s. Yep. It's fiction. Yep. Takes place in Europe. Yep. In Switzerland. Yep. Okay, I'll give you one more yeah. hint, and this should get you all okay. the way. This is a children's book. Sound Hansel and Gretel. Both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's not Sound of Music? Isn't that take place <laughs> not, in the field? Sound of Music <laughs> is not a children's book. I mean, children's book, do you know if that have Nazis? <laughs> really? Yeah. It was yes. a children's movie, though, wasn't it? No. I feel like was it? It was just a musical. There's kids in it. You know, I think in my brain I always combine Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. Like, oh, God. Into one, because the same, yeah. it was Julie Andrews playing a nanny in both cases. I would like to see a crossover where Mary Poppins saves those kids from the Nazis. <laughs> Mary Poppins could kick some Nazi ass. Yes. Let me tell you. One woman saw enough. One umbrella. Ray Dawn Chong, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Lou Diamond Phillips. Mary Poppins, The Revenge. Um, Okay, so since I know a lot of our listeners probably know what this is, I'm going to reveal it now. It is Heidi, the book. Oh, I've never read that. I have no idea what that is. (laughs) What? What is Heidi? You've never seen the movie Heidi? No. Little blonde girl? 
I think no. we can confidently say this is the most famous work of Swiss children's literature. Yes. It's by Joanna Spiri or Spiri. I don't know. All I know is that I have an illustrated, beautiful copy that I love so much that I carry it around to everywhere I live. And it's a really good, you know, the 19th century was the height of classic children's literature. And Heidi is no exception. It's about a girl who lives with her adorable grandpa. It's great. And it was made into a movie that famously cut into an Oakland Raiders game. And uh, people lost their shit. This was the 1970s. And it's called the Heidi game now because it chopped off the end of this game. Is it really? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's what you learn if you knew anything about sports, people. Okay, well, I already... What do you mean? It chopped off the end of the game? The, yeah, the, so the uh, there was I, it was a playoff game, as I recall. Not that I think I was alive for it. Um, and it was like the last three minutes. It was the deciding moments of the game. And the network cut it off and started playing the movie Heidi, which was scheduled to be broadcast at that time. And, you know, people went absolutely apeshit because they didn't find out who won the game. This was, of course, in like 19... 19- I think it was like 1972 or something right, like that. So, there was no so they would have had to wait till the evening news or the newspaper tomorrow to find out oh who had God. won the game. Um, so if you guys Google the Heidi game, it's a big deal. So there's a lot of wife beating going on there. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of alcoholics decided to take it out on yeah, that's, their kids. It's, and... it's, Heidi is synonymous with, with children being beaten by uh, <laughs> men wearing tank tops. Not my Raiders game! You guys are bad people. <laughs> Oh, my God. It was also a Shirley Temple movie. Adorable. Okay, you guys ready for book number three? Yes. All right, here we go. Um, Okay, this has a couple of different ways that I could consider the first sentence, so I'm going to read you a couple sentences. What you looking at me for? I didn't come to stay. Dot, dot, dot. I hadn't so much forgot as I couldn't bring myself to remember. Other things were more important. What you looking at me for? I didn't come to stay. Dot dot dot. Uh, wow. Uh, is this Poetry. is this beloved? No, it's not beloved. But that's a good guess. Uh, beloved. Um, yeah. And it's uh, writer, some, it's something I've read. You are correct in that the first line, the the first and third it's line poetry. are poetry. Uh, the refrain. I have read this. Um, yes, you have. So it's got to be. Um, I mean, it may. Well, is it? Is it? Uh, it does sound like Toni Morrison, though, to yeah. begin in in dialogue or in poem, like and and to have that voice. Yeah, I've um, read. Is it Song of Solomon? No. Nope. Song uh, of Solomon was the one I read when we did. Great book. What the great hell book. is this? Is it Toni Morrison? No, but that's. Is it? Is it Alice Walker? I bet you it's Alice. Nope. Walker. No. It's no. A Southern writer. Oh, uh, it's, it's it's a God damn it! I was just about to Google it. I know, I know, I've read this. Who would have influenced those people? Uh, you know it. I can tell you know it. Good man is hard to find. Flannery O'Connor. No, good guess though. No, God damn it! Well, let's nail down what we do know. It's in the South, right? Twentieth yeah. century Southern literature, I would say. American, um, obviously. All um, correct. It's an African American woman. Um, God damn it! Yep. It's gonna make me crazy. Our listeners are screaming. Someone is screaming. It's not Gwendolyn Brooks, is it? No. Nope. Uh, you just have to tell me or I'm going to lose my mind. Okay. What is are it? you ready? Are you ready, Ryan? Yes. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston. No. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. God. It's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Ah, yes. Yes. <laughs> God damn it. Yay. 
Yay. You know, I've I, actually never read that book. Oh, I awesome. own it, like everybody, but I've never. It's fantastic. I would have if if we had if, if I had just heard those words spoken somewhere, I would have spent the rest of my night laying in bed going, "Where the fuck did I read that?" <laughs> oh, um, well, it's God, a great book. Awesome. It's actually you know high school classic, but it it holds up, and you guys got the voice and the tone really fast. So I'm very proud of you for failing I, I all a... three of my books. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this does remind me though. Um, my favorite SNL sketch of like the last five years is the I know why the cage bird laughs joke. Have you guys seen this? No. Um, no. It's just. Well, Saturday night's it's, not party. It's the, the joke of the sketch is that um, Maya Angelou, who's played by Maya Rudolph, who's hilarious, um, she's this nationally renowned figure, but she just wants to do like a prank show. And she pulls really stupid <laughs> pranks on people, but people respect her too much to be surprised. It's, it's so funny. funny. It's, it's that's a just, great it's idea. That's a good idea. So I, I'm going to put it on our Facebook. I know why the cage bird laughs. It, I've watched it like 50 times. Ah, okay. So, it's like having Gandhi prank you. Yeah, exactly. That's the idea of it. Uh, that's our cover. We have judged. We have been judged. Thanks for listening, and guys. And we failed. We failed miserably. We failed, as usual. Failed. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks, guys, and uh, see you next time on the Disco. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. So for about the last, I don't know, three months, we've either read horrible books or <laughs> books that have been terribly, terribly depressing. Or books that we argued a lot about. Exactly. But we realized we'd never read a crime novel before. And I am a huge crime fan, and Ryder and Julia are also big crime fans, so it's sort of surprising that we never did. And so I thought about a book I'd already read and then listened to as a book, as an audiobook. Um, and then decide what the hell I'll read it again. I like it so much. And it's a book called Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin. Um, and Tom Franklin's sort of an interesting writer. He, he's not terribly prolific. He's uh, written four books. Um, I was first introduced to him with his first book, a collection of short stories called Poachers, um, which came out maybe 15 years ago, something like that. Um, and then he had a Civil War novel called Hell at the Breach, um, which I own and have not read. And another novel called Gronk, uh, which I own and have not read. Or Smonk, rather. I'm sorry. Gronk uh, plays tight end for the New England Patriots. Um, <laughs> so basically, I've read Poachers and loved it. Um, have been told by everyone that I must read Hell at the Breach. And then read Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter when it came out a couple years ago. Um, it was a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best Novel. And the Edgar Award is given out to the best in crime fiction. And they give it to Best Novel, Best First Novel, Best true crime, all sorts of things. So it's it's a really high honor in the crime field to be nominated, just to be nominated for it. And uh, So he didn't win that year. I don't remember what did. Um, but come on, how could this not win? I should look that to see what was the crazy. winner that year. This book is so good. It might have been Tana French, actually. Oh, uh, well. Um, oh, right. I, if I remember. But this is better than Tana French, I'm sorry. Ooh, we'll have to, this is one of the best thrillers I've ever read. So, and the reason I picked Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter is that I thought that it would appeal to both Julian Ryder's literary um, desires as well, not just be a straight crime novel. And it really isn't right. a straight crime novel. It's a crime novel like, I think, um, To Kill a Mockingbird is a crime novel. Um, so... Mm -hmm. 
we've all just said how much we loved it, but I'm, I'm interested to see what you guys thought in comparison to what I thought, and I have lots of big feelings about it. Well, I think, I mean, I, I know that we all loved it, um, but before we even go into this, since this is a, a genre that all three of us love and have talked about casually before, Todd, how would you define a crime novel for our readers? Well, this is, I, I think it depends. This is actually sort of a, a more traditional crime novel in one sense, in which it, there is a crime that is committed and a cop goes and solves it. Um, and in this case, the cop is a guy named Silas, who's known colloquially as 32, which was his jersey number. And the book opens up with a missing girl that um, that Silas is looking for. So in that way, it is sort of a, a straight crime novel. There's a missing girl and a cop goes to find her. And a bunch of other stuff happens. But a lot of times a crime novel can be about the bad guy, which Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter is also kind of about, or a proposed mm-hmm. bad guy. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's the crime novels that are about, say, a hitman or, um, or a robber, something like that. And then there's the crime novels where they're actually solving. So it's the difference between mystery and crime, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is what we're talking about here. This is more of a mystery novel than it is a crime novel. I, I like to think of crime sort of as the stuff I sometimes write, actually, which is usually about someone doing bad things versus solving bad things. Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you. Because I, I think there's so many interesting little styles that this this genre gets really subdivided. You know, mm-hmm. thriller, mystery, crime, suspense. You know, those procedural. Are all, yeah, right, and th- exactly. There's a, and there, there's also the PIs. So you know, your your classic sort of Raymond Chandler type book or. Um, uh, you know, a Michael Conley novel where there's, you know, Detective Bosch goes out and solves the crimes, where it's really about the procedure of police work. Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter is not a novel about police work, necessarily. It's really a novel about, um, and this will sound familiar, the theme is really redemption. (laughs) (laughs) And and also, it's about buried secrets and about um, and about reputation and about race. So we let, let, uh, let me quickly break down what happens in the book just in a general way. So it opens with a missing girl, um, Tina Rutherford, I think her name is. Is that correct? Or the Rutherford girl. Yeah. Um, and a, the cop, Silas, uh, goes uh, in search of her. That, that's, the, that's the A story that's going on. At the same time, there's a character named Larry, um, Larry Ott, who, as the book opens, the Rutherford girl is missing, he uh, walks into his home and is shot and nearly killed at the beginning of the book. And you find out from that point forward that Larry Ott is the, uh, was suspected in the um, abduction and possible murder of another girl 30 years earlier, Cindy Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's lived in this small town in Mississippi all these years, and people call him Scary Larry. And, you know, he is that guy that no one wants to be anywhere near. And he's operated a, uh, a mechanic shop that no one uses. That was his father's. And he and Silas had been childhood friends. And so when Silas comes back to this small town in Mississippi as the, uh, as the main cop in town, basically, Larry tries to get in contact with him. And Silas doesn't really want to talk to him. And then all of this stuff happens. The Rutherford girl goes missing. Larry is found shot and, and nearly dead. And a web of lies and deceit from Silas and Larry's childhood unfolds in the same time this murder investigation is going on. So that's the basic plot of, uh, of the novel. Silas is black and Larry is white, which is also an important part of the book. 
And we have to decide how much we're going to reveal about the spoilers of the book because there's a lot that will spoil the book for people. Well, I don't think we can. I, I really don't. Want don't. To. I think that this is one. I think because what's interesting to me and so artful about this book is that it, like you were saying, Todd, it it almost fails as a mystery because the actual like Silas solving the mystery becomes the least interesting right. part of the story, and it almost solves itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more. It's more just a story uh, really well structured. Mm-hmm. So the the mystery, pl- it's kind of like a Tarantino movie, you know, where it's like, if you could just lay out what happens, it becomes a completely uninteresting, boring set of coincidences and, and parallels that are like, meh. But because it's revealed so uh, slowly and... You know what this is? This is the difference. And I, I've, I've been in writing classes and discussions, even outside of writing classes, about what is the difference between story and plot. You know, and mm-hmm. like I, I think those terms are interchangeable to a lot of people, but uh, for other uh, other people, and I, I'm sort of on the fence myself about whether there is really a distinction. But maybe it's helpful to, in talking about this book. There's a plot, right? There's a missing girl, and there's how they solve that mystery. But then there's the story, which is how that is told, like how that plot is revealed, mm-hmm. and that story overtakes the plot, so that you, by the end of this book, you don't even really like that question is not as big of a deal as all the other stuff that's been revealed and like the relationships the relationships right. and yeah. yeah that becomes the story and um and, and I, I just think it's so well so well structured yeah I, this is such a good book to read if you want to learn how to reveal a secret i mean there's mm-hmm. things in here that i don't want to give away because the revelation of them is so anti your normal mystery yeah well not really i mean there's red herrings there's a particular red herring that i thought was just so great and really surprising because um something i wanted to mention is you know i really like this book i this is a book that this is the first book in a really really long time that i like came home early from work or got up half an hour early to read more of it um, I was just really excited about finishing it, and that that's the highest compliment I can give a book, um, is in getting up earlier and earlier without an alarm, because I want to read it. But, um, and <laughs> and it's not a while, terribly long book. I mean, it's under 300 pages long. You can read well, it that's yeah. You can read it fast, but if you read it fast, you miss a lot of really... Sh- that's what I was going to say. I, it's a slow read. Yeah. It's not a quick read, which is really interesting, because it's short, and it is very suspenseful, like you're saying, Julia, but you can't read it fast. No. If you try and read... Because there are some books that you can enjoyably read fast. You know, you skim through it. No. This book, if you skim through it, you completely lose... Because the, the 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 voice that he the narrative voice is very calm, slow, collected, and removed yeah. in a perfect way. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you can't just skim it because it won't it won't push uh, themes on you. It won't push thing like plot points are just kind of there, well, and you have to pick them up and figure them out. Yeah, you know? and here's it's really well. Which is you're so completely right. I couldn't agree more. But here's my here's my thing. So I love mysteries and i love books like this but the suspense overtakes me and it almost Mm -hmm. ruins the book in a way like i did i will confess i was skimming parts of this because i was so into the story i wasn't skimming but Mm -hmm. i was definitely not reading it the way it should have been read and that's why like i kept stopping myself um and i you know at a certain point that's really exciting and a certain point that's really frustrating and that's on me as a reader but then the other thing that happened is i've read so many mysteries that i as soon as i figured out you know 
basically what had happened. You know, there's that feeling of disappointment when you're right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I want to talk about, like, in general. I mean, do you guys experience that? I mean, Todd, you must know that. Yeah. I, solution there to pretty are, much every mystery. I do. And any caper I can figure out. Um, yeah. In, in fact, I should say, I'm reading a book my brother just wrote. Um, he has a new book that just came out, or it'll be out next week by the time you guys hear this, that he wrote with the author Jan Ivanovich. And I'm reading it, and I know exactly what's going to happen, and I haven't talked to him at all about the capers in it, but I can see I can see the legwork that, that's being done. And I see that in most crime novels. I can see it. Yeah. I had a pretty good idea what was going to happen in this. I had a pretty good idea of who had done what once the, the people showed up in the book. But what's fascinating about this book is that it is such a subtextual read that there's stuff that is said on page six that doesn't really pay off emotionally until later in the book. So, for instance, mm-hmm. um, so Larry, the, the guy who shot and who is the alleged kidnapper and killer of this woman um, for many years earlier, uh, he is one of the usual suspects. So when this other girl goes missing, the cops come to his house and go through it. But the cops go and look through his house on a regular basis. And on page six of the book, um, this cop French um, walk, has just walked through his house. Um, it says, French checked the drawers in the bedroom, the laundry room by the kitchen, closets, the attic, on his hands and knees, beaming his flashlight under the house, poking around in the barn, frightening the chickens. You understand, French usually repeated as he left. And at first, when you, see, when you hear French say, you understand, it seems a little menacing. And then by the end of the book, it has a completely different meaning for both Larry and for the reader of what French is saying and what Larry understands. Because, in fact, Larry does understand, and French understands something different. It's a really fascinating linguistic um, mystery that I think Tom Franklin sets out, because there's all of this cordiality, did I say that correctly, of the South, mm-hmm. cordialness, sure. this, the, the, the way you're supposed to act towards one another. And that's played out even amongst the criminals in this book, or the supposed criminals. And I'm fascinated by that, because it also has to do with the racism that, that Silas um, experiences as a kid, and then later on in the book as an adult, too. So there's all of those things were far more interesting to me than what happened to the girl the and what happened to yeah. the girl in the first place. Because by the middle of the book, I realized probably what had happened to... In, mm-hmm. in, I'd, I'd solved right. the crimes in my head. Uh, well, but you know what's interesting? I mean, even... I mean, we never learn anything about Tina Rutherford. No. Right? Like, no. She's this missing girl, and we learn the history of, like, almost every resident of this mm-hmm. town except her. Yeah. Which is, I mean, because it almost is besides the point. Like, that's not what this book is about. And Larry, we should just, this isn't too much of a spoiler, Larry's the key suspect. Like, everyone assumes Larry did it. And we, because we're reading about Larry's life a lot, like every other chapter is basically about Larry's life, we're assuming that he didn't do it the whole time so there's this tension that we're we are i mean it's built into the book that we're a step ahead of the rest of the people in this town mm-hmm. you know so i found myself completely not caring about the mystery but maybe that's me being uh a non-mystery right reader usually I, I i tend to not read that many mysteries i don't um, i don't and, i doubt tom franklin wrote this thinking i'm writing a crime novel i think he just wrote a book and one of the characters yeah. happens to be a cop well, this is something that I wanted to bring up because I I actually felt there was some tension in this book between its literary fiction qualities mm-hmm. and its its mystery qualities. And I started to get the sense that he had a really heavy-handed editor. 
making him put sentences in that he didn't want to put in. And that may be reading way too much into this book. But did you guys get a feeling that the, that the, the chapters ended with really overdramatic sentences? Like He ends a lot on dialogue. So yeah. Here we go. On page 69, uh, Silas gets a message from Larry on his answering machine. It's kind of important, but I don't want to say it over the phone. Thank you. And then in internal dialogue, Silas repeats a part of the, the message. Call back, even if it's late. And then, the, and then back to the narrative voice. Well, it was late, wasn't it, Larry? Too late. It's just like yeah. these, like, sort of, like, it just suddenly we're in this, like, hard-boiled crime novel that the rest of the book doesn't feel like. And I kept feeling that at the end of every chapter... And then there were also points that were wonderfully subtle that would be nailed nailed home with just one sentence that explained everything in case you missed it. And I felt like, you know what? I bet you Tom Franklin was trying to write a more subtle novel, trying to put himself in the Cormac McCarthy category of writers and had an editor saying, no, 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 you got to get the crime mystery reader. You know, we have to get the airport reader to pick this book up and obviously by based on the way it's marketed as a crime book and the way it's packaged that was always their intention i don't know but so i I doubt that it was an editor uh because i mean having read his short stories you know he writes sort of the you know he writes sort of in this dirty realism vein in his short stories um you know where it's there's you know bad guys but it's sort of a classic cliffhanger ending for a chapter you know it Particularly something where there's a where there's a dead body in it. I think that's just sort of there, and and maybe maybe another did, but you know we'll never know. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I didn't notice that at all, um, which is fascinating based on the one you just read because that's normally something that would annoy me so much. But I kind of feel like this book really is the best of both worlds. Like I, the best writing advice I ever heard is. Remember, you need the reader to turn every page. So, right. you know, right. you need to create some sense of urgency in there. And well, beyond the, I mean, the other, I mean, because the, the, the end of the chapters is one thing, and I, you're, you guys are right. Like, you have to build suspense. But there's also some explanatory sentences at the end of, like, really, he'll, he'll do, like, a really artful setup. For instance, I loved early on in the book, I picked up on the idea that Silas is driving this horribly beat up truck you know that he can't (laughs) it's always rattling the engine is so screwed up everyone's always telling him the engine is screwed up and then larry who this childhood friend that he lost touch with is a mechanic and it talks about larry's car running perfectly smoothly and i was like you know what that's a great subtle setup Mm -hmm. the idea that that you know these two men who have not no longer speaking to each other they're on opposite sides of the law and one of them's got a really beat up and you you but you feel that the need that Silas needs Larry. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel that because he needs Larry to fix his car, whether he realizes it or not. That could have just been left alone. But instead, we get an entire dialogue scene about Larry, you know, something about his car and how he could fix it. And, like, at the end of the book, it's obvious that Larry's going to fix And it's like, it's all brought to the fore. And it's like, you know what? Just let it be. Like, let that speak for itself. Um, or lines like this, you know, I have this, this, there's great passage about the coat there. Cause there's this thing about the coat that, uh, a, a, a coat that is given as a gift, um, at one point. And 
it says, With such gaps in Silas's understanding, he saw very clearly how the boy he'd been had grown to be the man he was. Mm. Yeah, that's no Sentences good. Sentences like that. It's like, I don't need that. I don't need that. Like, just tell me the passage about the coat and I can figure it out. You know, I can fill in a sentence like that. So it's just a little bit of, and that's where I thought maybe it's an editor because outside of really key sentences, he doesn't do any of that. It's just one or two, like heavy-handed. Well, here's the thing that I think is interesting is that there is a real sentimentality to the book. And Mm -hmm. it's a strange sentimentality because it's mixed with this murder and, um, and well, actually two murders, presumably. Um, But then there's also this yellowed sentimentality for this time when Larry and Silas were boys and playing in the woods together and, and all this other stuff that I think is sort of a cliched thing, you know, that that's the mm. sort of stuff that we expect. And Franklin, I, I think to his credit, casts it in a, a way that we can really understand it, which is that Larry is constantly reading Stephen King books and he's, right. he's reading the, the book of stories that um, the body is in. In fact, the, mm-hmm. the, the story that became the movie stand by me. And which plays a role really in the entire book, and in the and in the the plot of these uh, of these characters' lives. Um, but he he's I think trying to make us feel that sort of um, that that sort of broad sentimentality of for a reason, and that is to shock us when things go differently. Mm-hmm. Um, to, right. to take us out of that comfort zone. You know what's not sentimental in this book, now that I'm thinking about it and liking it all the more, is the solution to all of the murders. Yes, it's, I agree. I don't want to say too much about it. I don't want to say anything about it, but I'm just realizing how my the dissatisfaction that I expressed earlier is actually a huge strength of the book. If, if mm-hmm. another solution had occurred that I thought might be a possibility early on um it would not it would be a sentimental book like the the murders need to be they need to end gracefully and and remain horrifying and that's all i'm gonna say i think (laughs) i think the thing also is that that it takes place in a small town and deals with small town politics and small town relationships between people is a really American storytelling mm-hmm. model about mm-hmm. y- you know the darkness that exists in these little. This is a town that's off the beaten path. It's in Nowheresville, Mississippi, and it has all the intrigue and all of the sadness and despair and love and hate and brutality and drug abuse and all that stuff that exists in any big city. But here it is, writ small. You know, mm-hmm. which I think is really an interesting thing, and that's why, in my mind, I sort of compare it to um, *To Kill a Mockingbird*. But also, I think about a great book by Joe Lansdale called *The Bottoms*, um, which is also about a murder in a small town. But that takes place in the 1950s. Oh yeah, you've mentioned that before. Yeah, it's a it's a great book, a great book, and I wouldn't be surprised if if Tom Franklin is a Joe Lansdale fan, or if Joe Lansdale is a Tom Franklin fan. Um, but it's it's the um, it, it's also the undercurrent of racism that is going on in this city that I think is really compelling. You can be a white trash peckerwood and just the worst human being on earth, and you're still better than a good African-American person in this town. And this is even in the 1970s. This isn't in the 1930s, the 1950s. This is 1979 in the book, and the 1980. And then when Silas comes back, it's present day. And there's still that undercurrent of racism that goes through, which I think is a really 
subtle bit of storytelling and something I think is hard. You know, Tom Franklin is a, is a white guy writing um, a, a main character who's African-American writing from his perspective, um, which I think, you know, some people challenge that. Some people say you don't have the right to do it. I don't believe that's true. Um, I think I want to read a passage because there's a, one of my favorite, I mean, the setting in this book, like you're saying, is remarkable. He, he, it's, I feel like I've lived in this town by the mm-hmm. time I finished this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and in one section, I mean, I just wanted to read as an example of how good at describing the setting because it's not only just the town, but he also splinters the town into different mm-hmm. sections. So you feel like the town section, the diner, the cop station, the hospital. And then at one point, Silas drives to uh, basically a trailer park, like the white trash part of town. And uh, I just want to read that description because I thought it was so brilliant. In one yard was an old Chevy Vega, no hood, bitter weed growing through the engine block, windows broken, the trunk open. He'd seen a dog sitting in there once with its tongue out. Seen a goat on a rope, too. Cast off car parts speared by grass. Fishing lures dripping from the power lines. An old camper shell used for a chicken coop and chickens and guinea hens running wild in the weeds. A duck in a kid's wading pool. Kids revving four-wheelers in the deep grass. He didn't know what it was about white folks and four-wheelers, but every damn house seemed to have one. (laughs) Just yeah, perfect. It's perfect. You know, because you get the setting, then you get a perspective on that setting, and then not only that, but the four wheeler thing becomes an important mm-hmm. story component, mm-hmm. which I didn't even realize. I that I had outlined this to read on the show, but now, but now as I'm reading, I'm like, of course, the four wheeler plays a big part in in solving the mystery. Later. There's a lot of clues. This novel has such intense and specific points of view of who's looking mm-hmm. at who. And I feel like every character in this novel and every character in our lives, you know, can we stereotype people, obviously. So it it really casts light on that of the act of stereotyping um, can backfire very badly as -hmm. it does in this book. And I think I'll I'll tell you why I've now read this book twice and listened to it, (laughs) which is that Mm -hmm. as a reader and as a writer, it inspires me how much he, Tom Franklin, can do um, with laconic dialogue. Um, Silas is is a liar. (laughs) Silas has lived a lie his entire life. And once you sort of read what he says more than once, you see also how he has his own internal struggle with everything that he says as a lawman um, because he's witnessed and done things he's not proud of. And I, I, I think that always surprises me when I, in the three times that I've gone through this book now, the, the way Franklin is able to draw dimension from a character's lack of saying things sometimes, just a nod of the head or a sigh in Silas's case. And in Larry's case, from his interior dialogue, we don't, we don't know if, if we can trust Larry until about page 200 or 270, really. We don't know what's true and what isn't true about his own experience. I, and the first line, I, I really like the first line, but I want to point it out for something. And it's a cliched first line in a way, too. But let, let me read it. It's, the Rutherford girl had been missing for eight days when Larry Ott returned home and found a monster waiting in his house. It's a great and uh, easily mimicked first line because there's a bunch of books that start the same way, you know. The body was found on day five when Detective Jones walked in the door. You know, it's it's a perfect right. setup. And it's sort of mathematical, too, in how this book works out and how most crime novels do is that it's an A to Z story, but the math of it is that the Z is the beginning. There's a dead person, and you spend A through Y, basically, getting back to that body you saw 
in the first line of the book, which is exactly, you know, what happens in this book for the most part, too. It's just right. that you don't realize what the monster is that Larry's facing and everything else is going to happen. So it starts off as a very standard crime novel opening and then very quickly starts moving into what they call that literary crime. And really, that's, I think, the distinction that we're talking about here. And and I, I think it's a, it's a strange sort of subset, which is that, you know, literary crime is supposed to be more deeply thought out or, you know, it's it's more about mysteries of the human heart than it is about the the x's and o's i guess of of solving crimes and i think that's that strange area where books are the the difference between commercial fiction and literary fiction that we've sometimes talked about where commercial fiction yeah you can just read it and skim stuff whereas literary fiction you oftentimes want to really ruminate on a sentence and i think it's a tough thing that tom franklin does but he pulls it off because he hits both the commercial needs, the Rutherford girl had been missing for eight days, yeah. okay? And then he goes into literary, when Larry Ott returned home and found a monster waiting in his house. Now you start thinking, oh, what's going on here? This is, this is completely different. Um, and that's, that's a really, it's a really skillful and elegant and simple sentence to set off a book that is all about monsters that live in and among your house and around you and, and the, the people in your life who aren't what they seem to be. So, I love this book. I think the world should all buy it and turn it into a pop-up book so that everyone else can experience it as child, as children, I too. I cannot wait to reread <laughs> this book. This is, this is one that's yeah. like meant for a reread. The reread will be a completely new experience. Don't, don't reread it. Get the audiobook. Download the okay. audiobook and listen to it. It's, it's about nine hours long. Perfect if you happen to be driving somewhere very far. And the reader is awesome. 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 Great. He does Larry's voice great. He does Silas's voice great. It's really a, a fantastic audible book. Oh, my book. God. I'm double excited. Um, so that was Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter by Tom Franklin. Um, if you liked it, I, I suggest Poachers, the other book of his that I've read. And I'm, uh, I'm going to read Hell at the Breach and, uh, and his other book now, too, um, Smonk, because um, I can't imagine that I wouldn't love them. I don't know why I haven't read them previously. And that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss the novel Seating Arrangements by Maggie Shipsteed. Follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Thanks for listening. Thank you.